Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated and Occupy IR Theory Podcast. This is a short and special episode, a commentary episode, coming to you on Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. Um, I was writing a blog post, folks, um, as I'm a bit, I don't know what you'd call it, a bit upset, a bit bothered about some of the recent commentary and reaction I've seen going around about uh, the victory of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris over Donald J. Trump uh, to become the next presidential team running the United States of America. So just a caveat here before I get started, I want to make it clear from the outset that actually I do think on balance, it's probably a good thing that Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States. Um, I do, however, wonder how much better it's going to be under Joe Biden. Now, of course, I agree there are real and important positives to a Biden administration, such as the likelihood that Biden will put more labor-friendly appointees on the National Labor Relations Board. Equally, I think it's fair to say, Biden will probably do a better job with the coronavirus. Yet, as many uh, good-faith leftists out there will point out, the Biden administration will likely do very little to address the core rot at the heart of the pandemic-stricken neoliberal hellscape that is contemporary American political economy. Similarly, and I think I agree with them, these good-faith critics will point out that there are real and extremely worrying indications that, from a foreign policy perspective, the Biden administration will be loaded with neoconservative ghouls left over from the Bush W administration. I was listening to Chapo Trap House the other day. Derek Davison and Daniel Bessner were on discussing um, Trump and Biden's foreign policy differences. From their point of view, Trump at the end of the day, despite sort of talking up an American isolationism, uh, didn't do very much in the end to challenge the national security blob. Uh, neither was he an especially competent uh, whip uh, for uh, American empire. Uh, but Biden, on the other hand, certainly looks set to present a far more vicious and bloodthirsty face of the American war machine to the world. In the end, the fact remains that Trump was and is, of course, an insufferable narcissist. And while perhaps he is too dumb to ever deserve the accusation of fascism often thrown at him by academics and by the liberal left, it's probably better on balance to not have such a shameless used car salesman in the White House. As Matt Taibbi entertainingly put it in a recent Substack post, and I quote at length here, Donald Trump is so unlike most people, and so especially unlike anyone raised under a conventional moral framework, that he's perpetually misdiagnosed. The words we see slapped on him most often, like fascist and authoritarian, nowhere near describe what he really is, and I don't mean that as a compliment. It's been proven across four years that Trump lacks the attention span or ambition required to implement a true dictatorial regime. He might not have a moral problem with the idea, but two minutes into the plan, he'd leave the room, phone in hand, to throw on a robe or watch himself on Fox and Friends over a cheeseburger. 
The elite misread of Trump is egregious because he's an easily familiar type to the rest of America. We're a sales culture, and Trump is a salesman. Moreover, he's not just any salesman. He might be the greatest salesman ever, considering the quality of the product, i.e. himself. He's up to his eyes in balls. And the parts of his brain that hold most people back from selling schlock online degrees or tchotchkes door-to-door are absent. He has no shame, will say anything, and experiences morality the way the rest of us deal with indigestion. (laughs) I like that quote. So, yeah, even if the evidence is flimsy, it's certainly hard to dismiss the argument that a Biden White House will be at least marginally better. But in a way, that's precisely the point. It will be only marginally better, certainly nowhere near a major improvement, and certainly nowhere near the sort of level of improvement as would warrant the rather fawning reaction of many otherwise sensible and intelligent people, including, I should add, a number of academics and friends of this show, uh, to the election of Kamala Harris to the Eisenhower building in the last few days, usually sensible people, people who I would typically regard to be quite sober-minded and intelligent and of a fairly strong left-wing pedigree, have been posting memes lavishing praise on Harris as not only the first female vice president in U.S. history, but also the first woman of color vice president in U.S. history. This double whammy of specialness is supposedly a big deal. Harris is going to be an inspirational figure, the memes declare, for a whole generation of young women of color. And you might say at this point, well, where are you going with this, Kiersey? It's no small thing after all, right? Given America's problematic racial and gendered history for a woman of color to be in the White House. Okay, fair enough. But actually, I'm going to push back here. I actually genuinely don't understand the impulse. To pick perhaps an obvious example, few of us would look back and celebrate the election of Margaret Thatcher, who, uh, despite being the first female British prime minister, hardly elevated the cause of women's emancipation. Well, same here. There's a non-trivial amount of evidence that Kamala Harris is an awful human being and that on balance, she deserves to be called out much more than she deserves to be celebrated. In the course of her career as a prosecutor in California, Harris did very little to deserve the admiration of anyone on the left, let alone that of young black women. In a 2019 piece in the New York Times, Professor Laura Bazelon of the University of San Francisco School of Law offers just a few highlights of Harris's shameful career. She withheld information about police misconduct. She championed an anti-truancy initiative that criminalized non-compliant parents and threatened them with jail time. She appealed a judge in a case who ruled against the death penalty on constitutional grounds. She opposed marijuana legalization and then laughed about smoking up, of course, on the debate stage in 2020. She opposed the use of body-worn cameras by police officers. And finally, and perhaps most worryingly, she's associated with a string of wrongful conviction cases. From this review, it's not hard to make an argument that Harris made a practice of throwing innocent people under the bus to build up a tough-on-crime brand and cultivate her political career. She also arrived in the White House with a fat Rolodex of Silicon Valley donor names. Some speculate, in fact, that her post-primary largesse 
towards the Biden campaign was one of the key reasons that she got the VP nod in the first place. Despite the weight of evidence, however, the last few days or so, we've seen numerous self-identifying serious critical theory types blowing up on social media over criticism directed at Kamala Harris. So what's going on here? What's with the cognitive dissonance? The only theory that I can come up with is that the rage serves as a sort of displacement function. Let me explain for a minute here. The results of this election were actually pretty unambiguous. They clarified certain trends that were seen as ambiguous and contestable in 2016. One of the more famous analyses put forward in 2016 was, of course, the so-called deplorables hypothesis. This was a controversial idea, as former guest of this show, Lee Jones, explained in a blog post at the time. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But the basic gist of the article was that poor uh, white, well, it wasn't Lee Jones's gist, but it was the, it was the gist that he was responding to, the gist of the deplorables hypothesis is that poor white racists and flyover states put Trump over the edge. Now, if that theory sounded dodgy in 2016, the 2020 election results really smashed it to bits. As Matt Brunig noted in a tweet on November 4th, Trump, and I quote, did better in 2020 with every race and gender except white men. Now, to flesh that out a bit, what you've got to see in the data is that Trump gained four points from black men who had already trended red in 2016, of course, black women doubling his 2016 performance to eight points. He gained three points among Latino men and gained three points among other non-whites. He actually lost support from white male voters by five points. Now, okay, fair enough. White male voters were still, uh, by a margin, his main support group, followed closely by white females. But there's no doubt that the non-white vote confounded expectations. Given how close the election was, the numbers here are not trivial. Overall, Trump won a full quarter of the total non-white vote, up from 21% of the non-white vote in 2016. Given these increases and the crazy tight margins in many of the most contested states, the notable decline in white male support is arguably the only thing that saved Biden's campaign at the end of the day. And all of this, I think, just begs the even bigger question, how could Trump, the ignoramus, racist, fascist, misogynistic, Cheeto-faced, science denier, increase his votes among non-whites in the highest turnout election in U.S. history, or at least since 1900? It's a fascinating question, and actually, it's not the one I want to focus on in this commentary. Instead, I want to go a little deeper into what I referred to earlier as the displacement function. As we've talked about on this show before, a lot of self-identifying critical theory types engage in racial essentialism. Arguably, many of them don't even know that they're doing it, but they do do it. So what is this racial essentialism? Simply put, it's the expectation that demographics are a kind of moral destiny. It's the belief that non-white voters have fixed political preferences, which remain the same no matter what other variables beyond their racial experience might be affecting their lives. Now, black Marxists have long lamented this kind of analysis, very common among liberals. Uh, They lament it as condescending 
towards people of color. Cedric Johnson, for example, who's been on uh, Adam Proctor's show and and has featured in commentaries uh, that I've made on this program before, uh, notes that racial essentialism tends to instill in the mind heroic stereotypes about black subjectivity and the moral clarity of black voices. In the same breath, it also papers over the fact that in the decades since the civil rights struggles, economic mobilization has decreased black poverty from 60% to 25%. And so racial essentialism occludes how black voting preferences are being distributed differently as a result of these class adjustments. It's class politics that are starting to determine how black people vote, not necessarily racial experience. So you can understand why this narrative, this narrative against racial essentialism, might not fit well with the worldview of critical liberal academics who have built their entire careers upon the idea that whiteness is the original sin of modernity and that the only real way to create political change is through a purging of so-called white logocentrism. For a particularly fascinating example of this mindset, I want to raised the case study with you, if you will, of an interview that was posted on Novara Media this week with the economic historian Adam Tooze. Now, Adam Tooze said a lot of really great things, and he is a, a pretty astute academic, and I I rarely, if ever, have anything negative to say about his commentary, but I, I could not let this one pass. Pondering the racial politics of the 2020 election cycle, Tooze noted that the exit polls might not actually be a good indicator in a coronavirus year because the numbers would not factor the preferences of the unusually high number of mail-in early ballots in the election. The early ballots, Tooze claimed, would likely tend to skew progressive in the 2020 cycle because, and of course this is true, in the months leading up to the vote, Trump had repeatedly warned his supporters away from trusting postal ballots. Yet, while Tooze's point might seem reasonable, if you actually do five seconds of research, I looked it up in the New York Times, the poll in question that um, Matt Brunig was citing and and, uh, many others have cited, the Edison poll, in other words, which is the gold standard exit poll for US politics, did actually account for mail-in votes. So what's going on here? Look, Let's even just put the poll aside for a minute. Let's just look at the uh, election results themselves. It's hard to imagine that someone like Tooze would not have taken time uh, before making public commentary to look deeper into the actual results. It's unlikely, I think, that he would have been unaware, for example, that Trump had radically increased his margin in the near homogeneously Hispanic border counties of the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, where I live. Trump, this time round, even flipped Zapata County from blue to red by 30 points. Now, you might say, wow, yeah, but I'm going to give you a really eye-opening fact now in a minute. This is the first time that Zapata County voted for a Republican in 100 years. So, you know, clearly there's more to be observed here. There's more facts supporting the case than a mere glance at um, allegedly problematic exit polls might give you uh, a perspective on. Granted, of course, 
Hispanic voters are not a homogenous block. The Cuban vote in Miami, for example, has long been conservative. But on the whole, the Mexican vote in the Rio Grande Valley has been solid blue for a long time. It was solid blue for Hillary in 2016. So something very unique, new, strange happened this time around. And considering the tight results in many states and the very high national turnout, the significance of these voting patterns for the final results cannot be gainsaid. Equally clear, I think, is the fact that these patterns refuse explanation in simple racial terms, right? It's not just a Hispanic phenomena, whatever that might mean. It's not just a Rio Grande Valley phenomena. It's not just a Latino phenomena. What does it mean then? Well, on the one hand, I think it's important not to overstate the case. The data presented in the New York Times shows clearly white voters were still Trump's number one uh, sort of racial group of support, if you will. Nevertheless, I think the results do undermine a key assumption underpinning the analysis of folks like twos, namely that racism plays an unambiguously massive determining role in U.S. electoral politics. What seems to be emerging instead is a new battle middle-class, urban, and college-educated on the one side, with poor, rural, and non-college-educated on the other. The former went into the 2020 election believing that the primary issues on their agenda uh, were identity and the handling of the coronavirus, while the latter appear to have voted primarily on the basis of economic concerns. And indeed, these results merely confirm what was already indicated, I think, in the 2018 midterm cycle. I'll put a link to some notes on that in the in the show notes as well, so you can look that up for yourself. Hence the displacement function. We are beginning now, I think, to get a sense of why supposedly progressive thinkers appear to be so incapable of handling any criticism of Kamala Harris and why they so frequently demand that white leftist critics stay in their lane, to quote the phrase. Similarly, we are beginning to get a sense of how it is that an expert figure like Adam Tooze can so casually overlook already widely available data on racial electoral preferences and hand wave away what are in fact obvious patterns in these election results. Indeed, we might even be beginning to get a sense of how it was exactly that the Biden campaign managed to fritter away what was supposed to be one of its key strengths, its innate appeal to black voters. The focus on race as the overarching determinant of American politics belies, I think, what is a major issue facing progressive and academic thought as we head into a new era of coronavirus-driven economic crisis and austerity. Simply put, it's a class problem. As the New York Times data shows, 40% of the voters in 2020 belonged to the $50,000 to $100,000 per year middle-income bracket. And of these, 57% voted for Biden, the highest concentration of support for any candidate among any income bracket. The upshot here isn't hard to fathom. It underlines that the real divide in the data is the one between the college educated and the non-college educated. Matt Chrisman uh, from Chapo Trap House has been doing some interesting video blogs on this. I'll put links in the show notes. Um, he argues uh, that we are living through a period of major political realignment. The Democratic Party, the traditional party of the working class in the United States, has been studiously working to reorient itself as a party of the college-educated urban elite. 
The Republican Party, on the other hand, appears yet oblivious to this development. Uh, perhaps only Trump and Steve Bannon have copped on to it. Um, there is a gap, the point is, uh, in the market for a real working class party. It might well be the case that the Republican Party steps up to fill that gap, but we've yet to see. What I want to ponder here is what this realignment might mean for academia, or at least those in the humanities and the social sciences. Because academics are not people who are used to seeing themselves as anything other than the unbiased servants of truth and the advancement of the Enlightenment project. Even in their more post-structural and Frankfurt school iterations, the identity of the college professor remains that of the iconoclast, seeking in the classroom those, and I quote, teachable moments that would challenge the student to engage in self-critique so that any political instinct they might have towards class, class solidarity could be purged in favor of more constructivist intuitions. And I want to be absolutely clear here. This is a political project. To understand this, one need only reflect on the stakes of the project for Marxism, for example, which teaches us a rather different perspective, that there are real and fundamental material structures at work in the world, and that these structures have massive pressuring effects on our political outcomes. That these structures can be overcome, the argument continues, only by means of the organization of the working class. The fawning over Harris and the refusal to see how class is increasingly overriding race as a force in American politics is instructive in this sense. It points, I think, to a blind spot, not just among the college-educated elite in America, but among those responsible for their intellectual formation. The awful paradox here is that the critical constructivist College professor is generally unaware of his or her own moral exceptionalism. This is why they get so offended, and I mean offended, when their role in class politics is pointed out to them. This is why they prefer to prescribe the existence of lanes and urge us to stay in those lanes rather than call attention to the facts of Kamala Harris's problematic career. To be fair, they seem to mean well, their heart's in the right place, but the fundamental outcome of their intellectual blind spot is the continued fetishization of the heroic epistemological standpoint of racial minorities, something that functions necessarily to judge in advance any emergent solidarity among the multiracial, non-college-educated non voters that compose the American proletariat today. It is worth recalling that critical theory megastars like Judith Butler and Donna Haraway were both donors to Kamala Harris's primary campaign. When this information first surfaced in December 2019, it didn't seem like much more than a mildly instructive piece of silly gossip. As Liza Featherstone observed at the time, looking back on it now, however, it seems far more ominous because it speaks, I think, to the ideological function, both of a college education and the progressive identitarian college professor whose job it is to offer that education. And here, ultimately, guys, girls, this is where you get into trouble. This is where you've said the unspeakable thing that the college professor cannot allow his or herself to hear. This is where they put their head in their hands or their fingers in their ears, nodding frustratedly and say, you just don't understand. They might even tell you they're Marxist. They might even tell you, I teach to lose for God's sake. But it doesn't matter. The fact remains that the primary function of their job is to teach 
upwardly bound bourgeois and lumpen students that thought is the central axis of politics. So, they say, if you want politics to change, you have to change thought. But again, what goes unspoken here is the stake of the claim. If we accept that thought is the central axis of politics, then the very possibility that material interests motivate power at all, or that the real and decisive events in human history have not come about through discursive engagements, but through eruptions of materially motivated groups, becomes nothing more than a curious historical thought artifact. An antique idea to be entertained, but only as a somehow vulgar or less than fully sophisticated world view. Whatever people like Adam Tooze or his interlocutors on Novara Media like Dahlia Gabriel or Ash Sarkar or Judith Butler or any of the legion of other American K-Hive critical academics might tell you, the election results are devastating news for the left. We have just seen the victory on a razor thin margin of a democratic candidate fully married to the politics of identity performance and with no economic message to speak of. All Biden offered was the promise of a return to civility and the promise of a less buffoonish management of the coronavirus. Equally, it seems clear that no small measure of Trump's surprising success in this election should be attributed to his explicitly economic messaging and the resulting inroads made among a poor, rural and anxious multiracial working class. This sounds like heresy, and I admit it's genuinely hard even for me to accept, but the facts speak for themselves. Identitarian academics clearly have a selection bias when it comes to analyzing increased minority support for Trump in the 2020 election cycle, but their error here is only symptomatic of the deeper issue, which is their own complicity with a class project that is actively undermining the very possibility of economic liberation in America today. Turning this around is going to be very hard, and there's no magic bullet except the slow, patient work of class-based organizing. Academics will need to reflect on their role in this and recognize their partisan role in the emerging new class conflict. Right now, they're on the wrong side of the fight, and it's not clear what can be done about it. But it is my hope that with commentaries like this one and others I'm seeing circulating, we can begin at least to have a conversation about class and higher education.